I am an avid reader. If you had been able to browse through my library of earlier years, you would have found primarily science books related to human anatomy, physiology, microbiology, embryology, cytology, biochemistry, books I considered essential to my work as an instructor of biology at a small university in Texas. If you were to browse my library today, you would find no science books at all, but rather a collection of seemingly dull volumes related to education, philosophy, theology, comparative worldview studies, all evidence of a radical change in the direction of my life orchestrated by God's mercy and grace 30 years ago. But sadly, what you would not have found in my earlier library, and not until just very recently, is a particular genre of books called fiction, specifically novels. Oh, I had a few classic Russian novels by Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, which I was inspired to purchase and read because of my work in Russia over the years. But my preference for reading, by far, were books I considered more important. I classified these books as related to the true issues of real life in my focus of work related to the Ministry of Christian Education. Fortunately, thanks to my wife Nancy's suggestion that I needed to relax and enjoy fiction and have fun, she was, after all, a university professor of English and literature, and thanks to a recommendation by our beloved pastor Kevin just this past fall, I was introduced to a series of novels by Canadian Catholic author Michael O'Brien. Because O'Brien's book had been recommended to Kevin by our own beloved bishop, Steve Breedlove, and because although they were fiction, they were centered around the cruciform life as Christians are called to live, I decided, uh, all right, I'll give it a try. The first book Kevin introduced to me was entitled Island of the World, with the warning or caveat that it was a bit tad long, a mere 811 pages to be exact. With some hesitation, I purchased the book and began to read. Much to my surprise, I was captivated, or should I say, ensnared by the very first page. I couldn't put it down. The first few, few chapters in part one literally fill my heart and mind with peace, joy, beauty, and warmth to such an extent that on some nights after reading well beyond my normal bedtime, I would lie awake for several minutes just savoring the unfolding richness of an incredibly beautiful story. However, shortly after I began reading the novel, Kevin asked if I had come to part two, hinting that I might find those chapters a bit difficult to read. And was he ever correct? Not only were they difficult, I could not fall asleep for some time after delving into those chapters. In fact, the more I read, the more anxious I became as the plot thickened with unimaginable scenes of suffering and grief. One night I was so disturbed, I literally thought, I just cannot finish this book. Will it end with the grief and chaos I'm now engulfed by? Should I just put it back on the shelf? And then I did what I could not resist. I turned to the end of the book, searching for an ending that I hoped would calm my angst and give me the courage to keep reading. I rationalized that if I know how the story turns out, if it turns out okay, I can get through these seemingly hopeless, tragic events encountered by the main character. Now, some of you would say I cheated. 
but call it cheating or not, it was literally what I had to do in order to continue reading this book. Yes, it was a tough read, but the ending was glorious, literally to the point of tears. This evening in our continuing journey through Holy Week, we've arrived at the day which the church long ago named Good Friday. But for those of us who know the Holy Week story, doesn't the very name we give to this day appear to be a misnomer, a paradox, a self-contradictory statement? How can we call this Friday good? Are we not reflecting on the greatest crime in the history of the world, the crucifixion, the murder, if you will, of the immortal creator of life itself, Jesus Christ? From that perspective, our question is valid. For it was certainly not a Good Friday 2,000 years ago in the eyes of those followers of Jesus who stood at the foot of the cross beholding his agony and apparent defeat. But as G.K. Chesterton famously put it, a paradox is a truth standing on her head to get attention. A truth, a paradox is a truth standing on her head to get attention. In other words, our aversion and resistance to truth is so strong that God often finds it necessary to employ extreme measures to get us to see past the lies we've embraced about the human condition that we can save our own selves. But God exposes that lie by paradoxically punishing the offended party, punishing God himself instead of us, the guilty ones. But even if we as Christians who are living 2,000 years after this dark Friday have the advantage of accepting this paradox and knowing the happy ending of the tragic story and the advantages of understanding the good that came from the eternally degreed events of this day, I fear that we may also be at a great disadvantage. In what way, you might ask? Let me explain from my own experience and I believe the experience of most of you. For those of us who have heard the story so many times, I fear we can be lulled into considering our Lord's passion with complacency as we rush toward the joys of Resurrection Sunday, just as it was much easier for me to get through and even over the main character's grief and agony in the island of the world because I had peaked at the last chapter and knew he was going to make it so I think it's possible that we can read of Jesus suffering his passion with much of the edge of his sacrifice sanded or polished off because we know that Resurrection Sunday is just a few hours away. But tonight as we behold the Lamb of God upon the cross, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, the darkest of all nights, I want us to realize that there is, in the words of the late Catholic theologian Richard John Newhouse, an inherent tension to Holy Week in which we rush too quickly past the triumphal entry and the events of Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday. As Newhouse reminds us, the only way to Sunday is through, not around, Good Friday. So for a few moments, I want us to consider this dark night as if we had not already read the end of the story. Not as an act of morbid contemplation, but as an invitation to the Holy Spirit to reveal the depth of God's love for us, a depth of love that can only begin to be grasped in the cruciform life of Jesus Christ, who suffered more than we will ever grasp 
not in this life, and possibly not even in the life to come. But even as we pause to reflect more deeply on the passion, the physical, emotional, and even spiritual suffering of Christ, we must qualify this reflection with the understanding that we have no human capacity to grasp its full significance or depth. Our understanding of God is way beyond our grasp. The mysteries, the questions, the paradoxes of this cross point of world history, the cross itself, are utterly breathtaking. We see before us the day that the Apostle Paul described when he wrote to the church in Colossae that God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. Colossians 1.20. John Whitvelet of Calvin College calls this day the biblical version of Star Wars, the event in which the cosmos was redeemed, healed, and reconciled through what seems to be the paradox of all paradoxes, the making of peace through the blood of a criminal's cross. To Whitfield, this is like saying that a nuclear missile has become an olive branch, that a tank has been turned into a tractor or a sword into a plowshare. But this is not the only paradox he sees, for he says that this is the day when the living water says, I thirst. It's the day when the bread of life hungers. The resurrection and the life dies. And a murderer named Barabbas is allowed to live while the priest himself becomes the sacrifice. That is to say, the judge of the guilty is himself the one judged to be guilty. But perhaps the greatest mystery or paradox is that the eternal, immutable, loving trinity appears to disintegrate before our eyes as God the Father forsakes the Son whom he eternally proclaims to have loved. These and other mysteries and paradoxes have been probed by the greatest theologians, philosophers, and believers in all walks of life for centuries, forcing them and forcing us to either deny and reject God and the whole story of creation, its redemption, and fall, fall and redemption, or in humility, cry out with the psalmist and King David, who said, O Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So with a posture of humility before God, in relation to the many questions about Jesus' passion we cannot answer, I want to share a brief compilation of insights which I hope will take us deeper into the sense and understanding of the suffering and death of Jesus on that Friday afternoon over 2,000 years ago. Biblical insights that have been compiled by theologians from a wide spectrum of Christian confessions, including the late 19th century British Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, and the late 20th century Roman Catholic American priest, Richard John Newhouse. I've been deeply moved by Charles Spurgeon's exposition of Psalm 4, verse 2, where it says, O oh, you sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? From this one verse, 
Spurgeon powerfully contrasts the traditional honors that were normally awarded to triumphant kings of earlier centuries with the perverted honors the blinded people of Israel awarded their long-expected king, the king we know now to be the king of kings. But before I describe these contrasting honors, it's essential that we do not remain as curious outsiders to these events, but rather we must count ourselves among the very crowds who have mocked Jesus' glory by our own sin. Now, among the many honors provided triumphant kings, five were shamefully displayed this Good Friday. A procession of honor, a crown of honor, wines of honor, a coronation of honor, a throne of honor, and guards of honor, and a title of honor. First, the procession. We are all guilty of giving Jesus a procession of honor along the Via Della Rosa, a Latin phrase meaning the painful or sorrowful path. He led the procession bearing his own cross, which was later to become his honored throne. And following behind him were not only the Roman soldiers, the Jewish priests, and the common people of his day, but in that crowd was John Hay. And each of you in this room and he was followed by the countless masses of humanity who have forever will live. This is the triumphal honor we have awarded the one who came to set us free from the bondage of sin and shame. And we have acclaimed him with our shouts of derision. And we've praised him with our cruel taunts and jeers. But next, we placed a crown of honor on his head. This was no ordinary crown. Oh, it had its traditional points like all crowns. But these points were not made of gold and adorned with jewels, but rather they were points meticulously crafted from thorns designed to pierce the skin, the muscle, the blood vessels, and nerves of Jesus' head, inflicting pain and releasing streams of blood through his hair, into his eyes, onto his face, and down into his beard. But this pain was only the forerunner of the sadistically calculated increments of pain inflicted in a crucifixion, because soon would follow the pain evoked by the multi-thong lead-embedded whips designed to tear open the flesh of his back, later to be followed by the most intense physical pain he could possibly suffer before death. The pain elicited from the five-inch nails piercing through the bone, muscles, tendons, nerves of his wrist and feet. But before the actual crucifixion, however, and even after we crucified him, we honored Jesus with wines of honor. The first was a narcotic wine. It was offered just before the nails were hammered into his flesh in order to secure his body to the cross. This was a cheap wine, a vinegar wine mixed with myrrh or gall, bitter herbs believed to be narcotic to ease the pain of the crucifixion. But this cup, Jesus refused. So that, as Charles Spurgeon says, he might preserve an uninjured taste wherewith to taste death to the full. The second wine of honor was wine vinegar with no narcotics, as we understand, and it was offered on a sponge attached to a stick in response to Jesus' cry of, 
I thirst. This cry clearly reveals two things about Jesus. First, it reveals his humanity. Yes, he is son of God, but he is fully son of man, groaning in pain, literally dying of thirst. And of this wine, he did drink. But this cry also reveals his deity. For as the Apostle John tells us in his gospel, Jesus said, I thirst, knowing that all he was called to do was now completed so that scripture would be fulfilled. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Psalm 69, 21. So we bow in awe and fear as we truly behold both the human and divine nature of Jesus displayed in tandem without contradiction, physically thirsting as the Son of Man, and spiritually fulfilling all Scripture as the Son of God. And then we gave Jesus a throne of honor. But unlike the golden thrones of earthly kings, Jesus' throne of honor was a bloody tree, a throne designed from eternity for the one who would become a curse for us, thus redeeming us from the curse of the law. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And yet this disgraceful mocking throne was the very throne that Jesus prophesied he was destined to sit upon when he said, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. After seating Jesus on the throne of honor, we even provided a most noble honor guard to protect him. These men, and again I add, we, showed our esteem for him by gambling over his garments, which were seized as booty. Spurgeon spares no words in describing these guards when he says, such was the bodyguard of the king of kings, a gang of brutal gamblers. What most of us don't realize from reading about this scene at the cross and from observing numerous paintings of it, is that the soldiers, again we, were gambling for all of Jesus' garments. Crucified criminals were stripped bare. They were hung naked, adding to the shame of their crime and its punishment. In our fallen world today, we dare not portray this reality through art. But the humiliating truth remains. Jesus was not deemed worthy of a covering that his nakedness might not be seen. He was hung naked before the jeering crowd who hated him, as well as before those weeping who loved him. Those who loved him, including Mary, his mother, and John, his beloved disciple. Can we really imagine this scene? and not flinch with grief to see God himself displayed so disgracefully before those he came to die for, but mercifully, perhaps as one second century saint put it, the lights of heaven turned away at noon that day, not only to signify the, dark, the, the darkness of this darkest moment in human history, but also to cover him, the light of the world, who in nakedness hung upon the cross. And finally, we gave Jesus a title of honor, King of the Jews, a title, while truthful, was not posted to affirm this truth, but to mock it, in essence, to deny its truthfulness. 
Some theologians think that the Romans were actually saying this, using this title, saying, he's a failure, you Jews. Your resistance to the only king, Caesar, can only likewise end in your failure, like this king that you refuse to accept. Again, Spurgeon. While the blinded Jews distinctly repudiated Pilate's designation of Jesus as king of the Jews, they, in essence, were calling him king of thieves by preferring Barabbas and by placing Jesus in the place of highest shame between two thieves. Now, as we ponder these physical sufferings by which Jesus accomplished our salvation, we must address in closing the deepest pain he suffered, the pain of silence. For all eternity, Jesus the Father and the Holy Spirit have existed in inseparable love and harmony and purpose. For all eternity, the Father has affirmed his love of the Son and has declared that love to both the world and to Jesus himself. At his birth, the shepherds, the lowliest of peasants, heard the angels declare that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem with praises of glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men. At Jesus' baptism, we hear the voice of God declare, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And at his temptation, Jesus is comforted and strengthened by God's angels, assuring him that his father knows and cares. And at his transfiguration, he hears the voice again declare, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, listen to him. And even at his agony in Gethsemane, while no voice of the Father is said to have been heard, the Father sends an angel to strengthen him, in essence saying, my son, I am with you. Yet toward the end of six hours of the most extreme pain any man could endure, Jesus cries out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer Silence. Complete silence. Here we see another of the deep mysteries or paradoxes in Scripture. The omniscient Son of God asking the omniscient Father why he has forsaken him. Surely this, must, this question must be crying forth from Jesus' humanity. For as God himself, Jesus knew the reason he became incarnate as Son of Man. He knew that sin, which he became for us, can have no fellowship with a holy God. But one thing we must not see in this silence is that it is an evidence of a broken trinity, God against God. To imply such is to imply the God we believe in does not even exist. And so it is in this silence, the incarnate Son of God, the Son of Man dies, as we behold this cross draped in black, signifying the most tragic death in history, we weep as we should. But our weeping is tempered by the glorious truth that Jesus' death is not the end. We've had the advantage of reading the end of the book, and we know that his death is not a period at the end of the story, it is only a comma within the story. The God who is love is now identified by his scars, and we ask why. But take courage, 
the procession, the crown, the wine, the throne, the title of dishonor and shame will soon become the procession, the crown, the wine, the throne, the title of honor and glory forever and ever. And the silence of God will be no more. In three days, this will all make sense.